Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh, housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. Visit libraryofmistakes.com to find out more. And for those keen to guard against mistakes, we also run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets, available both in person in London and Edinburgh, or online for wherever you are in the world. To find out more about the course, please see the link in the podcast show notes. Welcome to this very special podcast, a lecture by Professor Deirdre McCluskey at Edinburgh University. Professor McCluskey talks about humanomics, her attempt to eradicate or at least reduce the role of mathematics and economics, uh, and also talks about the market mind hypothesis, a new approach to the understanding of the market, the mind and the rational economic man being developed here in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Futures Institute. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the University of Edinburgh Business School. Um, I'll only be here very briefly before I hand over to um, Patrick uh, Scottanis, who is the, the founder and the brains behind the market mind hypothesis. Uh, my name is Owen Kelly. I work here at the Business School, but I also work at, I'm, I'm part of the faculty here at the Business School, um, but also at the Edinburgh Futures Institute. And on behalf of the, of the Edinburgh Futures Institute, we're really, really delighted to be uh, collaborating with the Market Mind Hypothesis on, on this event. Um, we've actually been, Patrick and I first spoke, um, my gosh, about six years ago or something like that. And um, given that the Edinburgh Futures Institute is all about new ideas and new ways of thinking, I think there's few few things actually which exemplify that sort of cross-disciplinary thinking uh, than, than the market mind hypothesis itself. Um, so Patrick told me um, earlier this evening that given that it's the 5th of December he was, he was mentioning that uh, this date is celebrated in the Netherlands where, where he's from uh, as the birthday of Sinterklaas which is the Dutch equivalent of our Santa Claus. Um, and it's a popular tradition uh, whereby people get together with loved ones to exchange gifts and especially it's a big deal for young children who receive presents and sweet treats and our guest of honour this evening has been a frequent visitor to the Netherlands and is well aware of this tradition and Patrick and I agreed that this evening uh, we're all in for a real treat ourselves as she brings her Sinterklaas gift by way of this guest lecture. Um, I'm going to hand over right away to Patrick to introduce our speaker but let me just say again, welcome to the business school, the physical surroundings we're in, and on behalf of the Edinburgh Futures Institute, welcome. And we're looking forward to collaborating a great deal with the market mind hypothesis as it joins us soon in the, in the, uh, the conversations that are going on at EFI. But Patrick, over to you. Thanks very much, Owen, for those kind welcome words. Um, I met Deirdre last year at a conference at the Mercatus Center in, in the US where she was a keynote speaker. Um, but she had a bit of a cold. So during the Q&A, um, I stood up and said, if I had known this, I would have brought you the best uh, medicine available, Scottish whiskey. <laughs> and um, uh, she let me know that she had visited old Reiki many times, and um, that kicked off our uh, discussion, um, which ended up with me making a few promises 
including uh, arranging that Deirdre could see Penmure House um, here in Edinburgh, um, where she was one of the original signatories to save uh, that building. Um, and um, it ended up this evening, Deirdre here as our guest uh, of honor. Um, her oeuvre and her <coughs> career is um, basically overwhelming, so um, I couldn't put it all in my head, so I have to read it. Um, Deirdre Nancy McCloskey is distinguished scholar and Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute, distinguished professor emerita of economics and of history, and professor emerita of English and of communication, adjunct in classics and philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Trained at Harvard in the 1960s as an economist, she has written 24 books and some 400 academic and popular articles on economic history, rhetoric, philosophy, statistical theory, economic theory, feminism, queer stu studies, liberalism, ethics, and law. She taught in 1968 to 1980 at the University of Chicago in the economics department during its glory days, but now describes herself as literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive, episcopalian, ex-Marxoid, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man, not conservative. I'm a Christian classical liberal. Please welcome Deirdre McCloskey. Thank you very much. I have a speech defect. I stutter on the word stutter often, so I have to say it that way. So you'll grow accustomed, I hope, to my uh, voice. Um, I, I think I'll sit, sit down. I don't know, I'm sort of con conflicted. It's more dynamic to stand up, but on the other hand, this is a smallish auditorium, so I'll sit down and be intimate. We're going to talk this evening about <coughs> the, con the condition of my beginning field, uh, economics, which I have loved since I read Bob Heilbrunner's The Worldly Philosophers in the summer after my first year at Harvard College and decided to switch from history, where I found you had to read many long and tedious books, to economics where all you needed to know is that marginal cost equals marginal benefit. And this was a satisfactory change. Although I, I joke that now as a economic historian and sort of quasi economic philosopher, I write long boring books <laughs> that <laughs> some students are forced to read. So I'm, I'm an economist, and I'm, a, I'm an economist right down to my patent leather shoes, which I haven't got on right now, but I'm an economist. I, um, uh, in, in, as a way of orientation, you can say that I've been every kind of economist you can be, from sort of uh, gentle Trotskyist, if there's such a thing, on the left, to uh, um, Chicago School um, applied economist, you can say on the right, oh, in, a, in a way that's true, to now what I call humanomics, or the mind of the market, or what, are you, what Professor Ario 
climber um, calls in his one of his recent books doing the right thing. Economics is only part of our our our, our lives as humans. So this humanomics that I'm going to introduce you to is this kind of economics with the humans left in. But I, I don't think the, the, the kind I was trained, so I, I was trained in everything. <laughs> trained when I was in, in, at university, I was a Keynesian because that was what was on offer at, in Harvard College in the early 60s and then I became an applied economist and so on and so forth. So the whole range and from each of them, I learned, I learned something. And gradually, after being beaten on the head over and over again by these changing opinions of mine, I understood that, there, that none of them is the whole of how an economy works or the whole of social behavior. And that's the essential point that we were speaking about this afternoon um, in, in, in speaking of the mind of the market uh, that a correct economics, an economics that makes, makes sense politically and socially and humanly should be more than marginal benefit equals marginal cost. Even though that's very teachable, and I teach it to my students, and I think it's a fine thing that there's a certain amount of rationality in human life, what we economists call rationality, a certain amount of calculation when you buy a, a, an automobile or when you buy a loaf of bread. You're, you're doing a little bit of calculating, certainly, and in circumstances in which that's applicable, it's applicable, and should be used. So I, I urge those of you in the audience who are not economists and are very suspicious of my wonderful field that I've loved since I was um, 18, um, uh, don't assume that it's just all nonsense or that it's just all opinion and the economists don't, even if they're of the sort I'm talking about, marginal benefit equals marginal cost, that that's, they're, they're just stupid and they're not real scientists or something like that. They are. Economics is a science. It's an empirical science. It's a mathematical science. It's a science. It's worth knowing, I think, that the word science in English has had a very strange modern history. Until the middle of the 19th century, the word science was like, um, like in German, a uh, 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 Wissenschaft, or in Dutch, Wetenschap, or in, um, uh, in French, Science, or Scienza in Italian. It meant systematic inquiry. So in German, it's not, it doesn't jar a German ear to say klassische Wissenschaft, or still more strangely, Geisteswissenschaft. Schaft meaning the humanities. 
systematic study of any sort should be called a science. And I wish we'd stop obsessing in economics about worrying that we're not like physicists, that we're not a physical science. God, that's awful. It's disgraceful. We're not real scientists. We're real scientists. Even this kind that I'm going to cr criticize is science because it's a, it's a serious inquiry into the world and it's uh, how, it, how, it, how it works. All right, so that's where I'm coming from, a sort of Catholic in the, in the small c sense, uh, a Catholic education in economics. And, he, and then I became a historian, economic historian, and uh, have been the member of three voting members of uh, voting member of three history departments, became socialized to some degree as a historian. I haven't ever been an archival historian, as my colleagues in history almost all are. I'm more like the essayists in, in history, of which there are some. Um, so I'm an economic historian, but <laughs> I, I like to say, uh, in the words of the great uh, American comedian Mae West, vaudeville, early movies, Mae West, the big blonde. She was wonderful. She wrote all her own stuff and she said, I was snow white, but I drifted. <laughs> <laughs> she also said, I approve of the institution of marriage, but I'm not ready for an institution, and so forth. So I continued to drift because as a, as a trained Harvard-style economist in the 60s, I then confronted Chicago School economics in my employment and they hated each other in the 1960s. Now they're indistinguishable. Harvard and MIT are the same. They're, but once they were very distinguishable. And I, and I, I got interested in what I came to call the rhetoric of economics. How economists and other scientists indeed persuade each other. And uh, from that I eventually became a professor of English and communication and, and so on and so forth. And started to get a broader view of economics. I was helped along with my long fr friendship with Ario Clamor uh, uh, and, and, and lots of other people. So this is the confessions of a drifter, the, someone who drifted through all possible views, almost all. I've not never been a, a, a European conservative. I've European style conservative. I've never been a Stalinist, but everything in between. Now. <coughs> What's wrong with the, what, what they themselves call the mainstream of economics? I call it the orthodoxy. I also call it Samuelsonian economics, after a very great economist named Paul um, Samuelson. He was a friend of my parents. I didn't ever know him, so I'm, I must call him Professor Samuelson or Robert, not Robert, uh, Paul Samuelson. Um, they knew him as Paul. 
In fact, he was my, this is an important fact, which you must, it's your main takeaway this evening. My mother was Paul's, was Professor Samuelson's longtime mixed doubles tennis partner. <laughs> Just in case you needed to know that. Um, I, so I call it Samuelsonian economics because Paul Samuelson and remarkably his brother-in-law, a man named Kenneth Arrow, were the inventors of the mainstream of economics, as they call it themselves. So, the, the orthodoxy of economics. And what's wrong with it? Well, I've, I've told you that I think there are things that are right about it. I wrote in, in the last edition, was a long time ago, uh, a book called The Applied Theory of Price, which was a Chicago-style textbook in microeconomics and told you how to think like an economist through 1,000 work problems as though you were becoming an engineer or a chemist. Worked problems is how you learn to be an engineer or a chemist, as any engineer or chemist can, 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 can tell you. Um, but what, what's wrong with this? this I, it, the core of this orthodox, so-called mainstream economics, is a simple little mathematical argument called the maximization of utility under constraints. So you think of utility uh, between um, housing and food, say, and you, I'm not going to go into it, don't worry. Uh, um, and that's to be maximized. But of course, we, we're, we're in a world of scarcity. So we, we can't spend infinite amounts on both housing and food. We have to choose. And that choice is supposed to be governed by a constrained maximization problem. This is 18th century mathematics. And I call it the max u characterization of humans. In, in German, max u. <laughs> and Maksu is this somewhat repulsive character that's at the center of orthodox economics. And he, it's, it's a guy, definitely, <coughs> goes around making calculations about everything and trying to get the most he can in any circumstance. Now, in a way, that's not a crazy idea. It's a characterization of all life. All life forms, from bacteria to humans, have to do a certain amount of this seeking for the best for themselves, or at least for their family, or their gene pool, however you want to lo look at it from a genetic point of view, or they don't live. If a tree says, well, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm going to worry about this water stuff. I'm against H2O. I'm just going to, I'm not going to take drinks from the soil. This is dumb. I have higher purposes as a tree. Well, the tree's not going to live very long. 
So in a way, this, this maximization idea that economists have, this Max U business, is very obvious life form rationality. And, and economists are very proud when they say, well, you see, uh, Milton Friedman, my former colleague, says, look, it's just like the trees turning their leaves towards the light. It's just biology. <laughs> You'll find this amusing. In the 1960s, some economists at, at, at Texas Agricultural and Mechanical University um, did experiments on animals and showing that animals were rational. Pigeons and rats. And they showed this kind of amazing stuff. They showed that they maximized a utility function under constraints. Wow! You mean pigeons are rational too? And what didn't occur to me at the time as a Chicago economist or to my colleagues is that that's pretty weak tea, you might say. The, yeah, animals are rational if what you mean is they go on living, okay, and they try to do pretty well, um, and, and I, I honor that hypothesis. I'm also a medieval economic historian, and the, the burden of medieval economic and social history, and actually for the last century, has been to show that medieval people in England did pretty well under the constraints they had. So and that's, that's, so it honors our medieval ancestors by not treating them as gormless idiots. All right? So that's, that's the <laughs> it's the gormless idiot hypothesis that mainstream economics denies. And that's worth pointing out because lots of people believe that they're, at least not them, but their friends are gormless idiots. And, and so this says, no, no, people are moderately rational. But <coughs> there are grave limits to such an argument, as you can see. Because if it applies to all forms of life, what about humans? Humans are different from, say, chimpanzees, our closest genetic cousins. Um, chimps would not go over the top at the Somme as the PALS battalions did in the First World War. A chimp mother might well, if offered enough bananas, throw her child over a cliff in exchange for the bananas. This is a hypothetical case. She probably wouldn't actually because her mother um, uh, instincts built in to this survival uh, mechanism are so strong. But, but it's possible. But a human mother, you know, the, 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 the economist the, the, the Maksu economist comes to her and says, look, I'll offer you $10,000 if you throw the <laughs> child over the cliffs of Dover. And uh, she says, go away. What nonsense. Oh, you mean it's about the price? 
I'll offer you a million dollars to throw the damn kid over the... She says, go away, you nitwit. I'm, I'm not going to do it. So there's something beyond prudence, beyond sheer moxhoo that's going on with economists. We say that the lion is the most courageous animal. No, lions aren't courageous in the nutty way that humans are. If a, if a lion meets an elephant, he runs away. It's stupid for a single lion to attack an elephant. It's not going to work out well. Um, uh, courage is not on offer in the animal kingdom because it doesn't fit into the uh, survival strategies of, um, of animals, even the ones closely related to us. This has been proved experimentally and decisively. Um, you, you, I won't go into the de details, but yes, at the, um, at the great um, um, primate research center in Atlanta, Georgia, they do experiments with, uh, with, with bonobos and standard chimps and gorillas compared with humans, and the humans don't behave like chimps. All right, what's the conclusion from this? We need a broader economics, it seems. And if we're going to use economics for public policy and for um, designing institutions and thinking about the economy, we need to have a more broad science. A science that somehow doesn't depend entirely on Marxu. That's not entirely about that. Now notice, the same is true of Marxist economics. I told you I was once a Marxist. And many friends, I still have friends, my great friend, Aryo and I are great friends with a man named Jack Amarillo, who's a brilliant well, actually, he's a postmodern Marxist economist, if you can feature that. And Jack is a wonderful man and a great intellect. But Marxist economics has the same problem that so-called mainstream economics of a uh, vaguely left-right, but not too far sort has. Namely, that it's all about self-interest, or in this case, class interest. Um, so it's more Max U. It's, it's not deeply distinct from Samuelsonian economics, which, by, by the way, Paul, Paul Samuelson's a very um, um, tolerant guy. So Paul Samuelson has done work on Marxist economics. Cool. Um, not that he sympathizes with it, but he analyzes it mathematically. So it's not, it's not just that economics, which you can think of as being kind of on the right, is the problem. And w people on the left, smart thinking people on the left, they're OK. They, they do the economics correctly. They don't. They, too, are obsessed with this maximizing 
uh, uh, paradigm. And they don't take sufficient account to start thinking about an alternative of identity or human virtues, the peculiarity of humans, the way they do love, the way they do faith is peculiar to humans. And it might, just even if you are mainstream or Marxist economist, you might think about it from time to time that, well, maybe, maybe this other stuff should figure, oh, well, no, I, I've got it worked out. It's, here, here's how it works. It's, the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle <coughs> or marginal cost equals marginal benefit. Let's just stay with that. That's, that's easier. That's my tradition. That's my identity. <laughs> and they don't get the self-criticism <laughs> in saying, I'm a Marxist economist. I'm a, a Samosonian economist. Damn right. I don't care about this identity stuff. They don't see the contradiction. So what's the problem with either Marxist or um, Samasonian economics. Well, for one thing, as I've argued a lot, they don't measure things seriously. Neither of them do. Actually, some of my Marxist colleagues are, are better at trying to measure the world than many of my Samasonian economists, uh, colleagues and friends. But they talk a lot about measurement. They use mathematics. And outsiders to, to those parts, those mathematical parts of science, don't understand that mathematics by itself is not inherently quantitative. Mathematicians don't care about quantities, magnitudes. You'd say, what? That's crazy. Two plus two equals four. No, they want to prove that two plus two is four as a, as a qualitative statement. Here, here's an example. All even numbers are the sum of two prime numbers. Prime numbers are numbers that can't be divided without remainder and into, into two whole numbers. So three is a prime number, five, seven, nine. Well, that's not a prime number, but it's odd experimental error. Eleven is an odd number, it's prime. Thirteen is an odd number, it's prime. Fifteen is an odd number, it's not prime, but more experimental error. That, that's how, <laughs> it's, it's a joke about engineers. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but it applies more to economists than to engineers. They don't measure things. You will have heard about externalities if you're somewhat sophisticated in economics. Spillovers would be the usual term. Yet, remarkably, 
startlingly, economics almost never measures the magnitude of these spillovers. And this is very disturbing <laughs> because the main justification for state intervention in the economy among moderately sophisticated people is, oh, there's an externality that needs to be taken care of. And so the state, which uh, is without blemish, will be brought in to fix the externality. Now for smoke pollution, it's fairly straightforward. Okay, maybe the state should come in. But there's a, there's a, if you don't measure, there's a deep problem. Namely, <laughs> that every human interaction is an externality. Those of you who are, have intimate partners will know that there's a lot of irritating things that he does. That's an externality. It just is. And the irritating things of your husband or your, your lover are not something that I think most of us in this room want the British government to intervene in. <laughs> it's not an issue that the Chancellor of the Exchequer should have anything to do with. And so with all kinds of interactions, if Ario writes, uh, or, or Patrick for that matter, writes a better book on economics, as both of them sadly have done, than me, that's an externality to, to me. Should I bring in Donald Trump as president to, to stop these two people, these irritating people who write better books than I do? And unless you have numbers, say in smoke pollution or in environmental pollution of some sort, that, are, that you can actually measure and you've actually done it, you have no right to talk about this hopeless failure of the market. Look, I'm, I'm speaking in an engineering way. I've been trained a lot by engineers. I was a transport economist for a while with engineers as colleagues. And I learned from, from the engineers that you measure, you measure, you measure. How big, how big, how big? And my economist colleagues don't do that. Now, you'll get a con contradiction. People say, oh, McCluskey, she's, she's wrong about this. We do econometrics, it's called. Wow. We fit hyperplanes to scatters of points. Gosh. Wow. But they don't think, here they don't think of the significance of the quantities. They get quantities, they get quantities by the, by the ton, but they don't ask how big is big. That's the other side. If you think there's an externality in, in uh, uh, well, let's take one, one more example of externality so you clearly get the point. If I wear a hideous, um, burnt orange dress. The older people here, especially the, especially the women, will know what burnt orange is. It's a hideous color. They made refrigerators colored 
in burnt orange. I don't know why they didn't make cars in them, but I guess they didn't, but refrigerators. Burnt orange is a terrible color. It's offensive. And if I wear it, it's an externality to you. You have to avert your eyes and ah. Should we have, as in Saudi Arabia or Iran, a police force to run by the wise governments of those two countries to keep, make sure there are no burnt orange dresses on the street? No, of course we shouldn't. Whereas in the econometric side, this is the other side, this is the other defense. They say, well, we do a lot of math, but they do what is known in the trade as existence theorem math. It's what the math department's interested in, not what the engineering, physics, or chemistry, or economics department is and should be interested in. But on the other side, on the econometric side, it's a humanist error they're making. In, in, they, they do measure a lot, numbers, 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 but they don't have any account of what's important about the numbers. Be like saying, it's not a very nice day in Edinburgh so far as the weather's concerned today. And suppose you ask me, well, how, how's the weather in Edinburgh? And I say, six. And you say, well, yeah, but six on what scale? Six. What's the matter? Don't you believe in numbers? Six. What are you, one of those humanists? An English professor? You're, you're not serious. You're not a real scientist. Six, six, six. And that's essentially what happens on the econometric side of economics. So this is a bad situation. It's bad for science. It's bad for policy. It's bad for politics. What to do? Well, as I said, a humanomics, as I call it. A colleague of mine at Chapman University in California and I, Bart, Bar Bart Wilson, who's the person who coined the word humanomics, Bart and I are going to meet this spring and write a um, survey article about humanomics. We're going to tell the rest of the profession, left and right, center, wherever they are, what a full economics should be like. Now look, <laughs> there are many economists in the history of our strange field who have been doing humanomics. And the first one, I'll stand up for this, is Adam Smith. Adam Smith did humanomics, which is to say that he was a professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow. And he was a he was a philosopher, he was a moral philosopher, he was an ethical philosopher. His first book, in fact, he only wrote two books so he wouldn't get, get tenure at most good universities, <laughs> um, was the theory of moral sentiments, which is often contrasted with, falsely with The Wealth of Nations, which is his more famous book. But he loved this book better than The Wealth of Nations. We can tell from the amount of new additions he did for the theory of moral sentiments in which he had substantial revisions and additions. 
And the opening line of the theory of moral sentiments is something like, I'll screw it up, I know, but I'll give it to you roughly. However much people may be considered self-interested, there is something in their nature that brings them to consider others. And that's right. And that's the fundamental premise of the book. And in a way, it's also the fundamental premise of the wealth of nations, because here he is arguing against a, what he called the commercial si si system mercantilism, the, the economics where what he calls the man of system reaches down and controls you as though you were chess pieces on a board, this kind of arrogance he hated, although incidentally his father was a customs officer and so was Smith. So there's, there's a biographical <coughs> problem here. But so, so the, the, the humanomics is this extension of economics to philosophy, to history. Those are kind of obvious uh, um, extensions. We have a, a library here of uh, mistakes. Is that what it's called? The Library of Mistakes, which you must find and visit. It was founded for to 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 uh, uh, focus on financial errors. You may have noticed that governments advised by economists often make mistakes, and among them. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, when she would visit the LSE, famously said to the economists there, why didn't you predict the 2008 recession? And they had no answer. Um, <laughs> one of their displays is, the, is an advertisement to go on the Titanic. And it says the safest, fastest, steamship in the world. <laughs> you know what happened on its maiden voyage. So there, there's those two obvious extensions. Philosophy, epistemology, serious epistemology, serious ethics, serious philosophy, serious history, where you take seriously the lessons of history and stop repeating the same errors over and over again in public policy or in politics. But it's more than that. It's also literature. It's also the humanities being the study of the arts, especially poetry, novels, plays. That, too, is part of a humanomics. If you haven't read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, you need to start reading it tomorrow, or maybe this evening. You can get the book in an English translation on, um, what's it called, Audible, and you can have it in your ear. And that book is primarily a profound reflection on human love, what it means, what it consists of.
what can go wrong, what can go right. But it's also remarkably a text, <laughs> so to speak, on the economy of late 19th century Russia. And a great artist like Tolstoy can see into the human character. I mean, every other sentence is insightful. And can see what kind of human we need to do humanomics. It wouldn't be this hideous Max U character. It would be someone like Anna Karenina um, or the other splendidly por portrayed, isn't quite the word, but even instantiated um, characters in that novel. We learn from Shakespeare, we learn from the Bible, we learn from theology, we learn what people are. And I think it's obvious that to do the science right, the science of humans right, we've got to have deeper knowledge than the average Marxist or bourgeois economist does of humans. Look, uh, it's been said wisely, first said in the 1940s, that if molecules and atoms, or mountains in geology, or stars in astronomy, or galaxies could talk, what would those sciences look like? Would they ignore the talk and only observe the molecules and atoms and stars and mountains? No, they would listen to them. They might tell lies. It's well known that mountains lie about their origin. But, but we, we, if, if those physical entities had language and were human to that degree, it would be a scientific error not to listen to them. And that's the point about humanomics, or the, uh, 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 the, the, the market as a, a personality and, a, and, a, and or, or uh, it's that language is fundamental. This is something that, well, I have to stand up again. Um, Adam Smith <laughs> um, said rather frequently, he said it. Uh, and he, he, he said, for example, in one of his, the, no, the student notes to le lectures that he gave, that the offer of a shilling is a persuasion, like verbal persuasions. It's just a part of verbal persuasion. We offer a shilling, it's like an argument. Um, and he said at the uh, beginning of the Wealth of Nations, he said, um, 
as it were, the same thing. He said that um, this propensity to truck and barter, as he called it, that is this funny thing that humans and only humans do, self-conscious, methodical trades with each other, um, are, uh, is, may be one of those motives that we can't inquire any deeper into. Or it may be, he said, a consequence of the faculties of reason and of speech. So look, and here I'll stop and we can, we, we can talk about it. Humanomics, as Smith and a series of other economists, whom this friend of mine in California and I are going to discuss, like Albert Hirschman, the great um, German-American economist, or Keynes for that matter, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, the, the, the kind of economics that they were suggesting was not this childish imitation of what economists think happens in physics, but a human science, a science humaine, as the French say, a, a study of humans, as the great English economist Alfred Marshall said, in the ordinary business of life. That's, that's economics, the ordinary business of life. And I think that the, well, let, let, let me actually give one, one more example. I could go on for the next week. Actually, we're going to close the doors and we're going to bring sandwiches in. And I'm going to spend the next hour discoursing on this next example. Um, it, it, it's my main example of the fruitfulness of humanomics. The great question that Adam Smith asked in The Wealth of Nations was the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. And you can claim that it's investment. You can claim that it's the education of the labor force. You can claim that it's the invention of the steam engine. You can claim it's the, uh, the use of coal for energy. Is some will say, you can say it's institutions. You can say it's the rule of law. You can say lots of things, all of which are mistaken historically. Because the cause of the modern world, the modern world that we, the, the descendants of peasants, I take it, I don't see any Habsburg chins here. I, I don't. I think there are no descendants of the crowned heads of Europe, Africa, or Asia here. Maybe, maybe there are, but most of us are descended from peasants, unspeakably poor peasants. Imagine living in Edinburgh on $2 a day, and you have a conception of where we came from. This amazing change to 100 or $150 a day, which is what we now enjoy, um, came about through a change in ideas change in ideology. And that change is called liberalism. In the last three centuries, there have been three original ideas in politics. The first was liberalism, 
you can call it equality of permission. That's what Adam Smith had in mind, equality of permission. Not equality of opportunity or outcome, but equality of permission. The next big idea, early 19th century, was nationalism. And the next big idea in the middle of the 19th century was socialism. And if you like the last two, maybe you'll like national socialism. <laughs> because the great idea that changed the modern world, and it's, you know, it's, it fits with this humanomics <coughs> idea, this, this idea that human language matters, that, uh, that, we're, that we're, we're, we're going to do better in understanding humans if we pay attention to that fact of humans and their, their, uh, their ethics and their, their, uh, their humanness. Um, it was a change unique to Northwestern Europe, starting in Holland, uh, passing to England and especially to Scotland in the 18th uh, um, century, and was theorized especially by Scots. Um, Adam Ferguson, uh, um, uh, David Hume, Adam Smith, and all the rest. And that idea is what made the modern world. To p put it in sporting terms, which... That British people are obsessed with, um, it was the notion that people should be allowed to have a go. You get, uh, I'm a, a cricket nut, I love the game, and so one side gets to bat and then the other side is. You're allowed to have a go, and equality of permission. Um, and that made the modern world. So, that's a pretty important scientific finding, if true. It's like a Victorian atheist who suggested that every church should have a large sign saying, important if true. <laughs> <laughs> and so this finding of mine, which I take credit for, even though Adam Smith himself said it in the 18th century, and a few others have said it since then, um, is important if true. Uh, and it's important precisely because it comes out of treating humans, even in the economy, as human beings. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. <laughs>